So what are the entities? Nature spirits? The gods? A dramatization from the shaman's subconscious mind? Somehow personifying information picked up by ESP or even DNA? Or could shaman really be in contact with beings on some other far-off world? These are the questions that we ask, and this is what we seek to find out on today's broadcast. Thank you for taking the time to tune into the Soul Trap. We trust that wherever, whenever this broadcast finds you, it finds you in good health, good spirits, and most of all, on that good and narrow way. You know, a couple weeks ago, we did a podcast on a book called The Stargate, a book written by Lynn Picknett and Clive Prince, and we discussed uh, the pyramid, the sphinx, other related archaeological discoveries, but primarily we talked about the uniqueness of this pyramid, often referred to as a stargate. And I want to return to this thought and really the conclusion. If you don't have the book, I want to highly recommend it. Of course, the only book that I recommend without caveat is the Word of God, the King James Bible. But uh, I do think that you would find this book, for those of you that are interested in a broader understanding uh, they cover a great deal of material, and, and I think it would be well worth you to pick up the book, well worth your time to pick up the book. The Stargate Conspiracy is the name of the book, written by Lynn Picknett and Clive Prince. And I'm, I want to return to that in today's teaching and discussion and the things that we talk about. You know, there is a veil that appears to have been pulled over uh, the vast majority of the Western world, I would say. I I don't think that it that it probably is pulled over so much some of the remnants of uh, Eastern mysticism, uh, other parts of the world, but definitely without a doubt, um, there is a veil that has been pulled over the mind of the modern man. I don't know if it started post-Reformation, probably so, coming out of the Dark Ages, certainly into the Renaissance, and then throughout the Industrial Revolution, and I think humanistic materialism has played a huge role in that. But there is, a, as I said just a second ago, a veil that's been pulled over our own world history. Um, for example, I'm reading a book currently right now by Barry Sell called uh, America B.C. that tells the true and undeniable archaeological story that Celts, Phoenicians, Egyptians were all here long before Columbus ever set foot on the East Indies. But of course, our history books and our philosophy of history has been so radically shaped especially by the 18th century Enlightenment and humanistic secularism, so on, that it's hard for us to really grasp how big, how deep, how circular, rather than linear, our history is. Evolution, materialism, secularism have done a great damage to our worldview. The first damage, I think, among many different ones, but one of the first damages is to assume that we have a line from bad to good, from barbarian to civilized, when in fact, history shows a line that is far more circular, up and down. Secondly, secular materialistic humanism has closed off the idea, the concept of an altered dimension. The Bible calls it spiritual. But even as science today begins to delve into string theory, quantum physics, on and on, they are coming to the conclusion that there is more than simply the materialistic. Well, the Stargate Conspiracy is a book that takes us out of our closed-minded history and out of our 
uh, one-dimensional empirical existence and takes us back and puts us at the very foot of the pyramid, a pyramid system, a building system that stretches beyond what it can hold, people who think that it was a bunch of Egyptians and togas, poles, crowbars, and elephants, and sand dunes that managed to put together one of the greatest archaeological and technological feats, not just in ancient antiquity, but in modern antiquity. The Stargate Conspiracy deals with the issue of the pyramid, and I don't think that it necessarily brings to light any particularly new concepts other than maybe to shoot down a few old ones. But it does hold, I think, in laser-like focus on the idea of how the information was transferred to the Egyptians. In other words, what was the mechanism that was used to convey the obvious technological advances to the Egyptians? Now, you have to understand that there are, there are several different schools. One of the schools, and we're talking about outside the normal archaeological frame of reference that states that it was basically the Egyptians that built that. Now that model holds if you're trying to hold the evolutionary line as is. That model holds if you're trying to maintain a humanistic, secularistic, materialistic point of view. But it doesn't hold weight when you're honest and open to the facts. I don't care whether you're a Christian or not. I don't care whether you're a Bible believer or not. When you look at the technological advancements of the pyramid, the Easter Islands, the Inca, the Aztec, when you look around the world, but primarily now we deal with the, the pyramid, the Great Pyramid on the plain, the, the plateau of Giza. When you look at that, there is just no doubt whatsoever that something highly technologically advanced was conveyed to the Egyptians. Now, there are several schools of thought. One is, is that the Egyptians came out of the... Well, let me back up. One is that the pyramids, the Sphinx, these were actually remnants of a pre-flood civilization. When you look at the pyramid, you are looking at a piece of architecture that would have been what Atlantis would have looked like, that it survived the flood. Some people believe that the information, the technology was built by the gods, the sons of God in Genesis 6. Some people believe that, and I don't ascribe to this at all, but that there is the sort of the, what's become popularly termed the alien astronaut, that uh, aliens came to this planet and transferred their information and their ability in a Prometheus-like way to the Egyptians. Well, the problem with that is, is that I, I don't believe that, number one, but the problem with the gods building it directly is that even though it is technologically advanced, it is not dimensionally advanced. And what I mean by that is, is that when you look at the pyramid, the great pyramids, and you look at the great archaeological advancements around the world, they are still dimensionally rooted in the world in which you and I live. Not only that, but they are spatially, chronologically rooted in the time. For instance, there is no arch in the Great Pyramid. Obviously, an arch is an archaeological, uh, architectural advancement, and yet there's no arch in the Great Pyramid. Why would that be? Well, the Stargate conspiracy seems to get at that. And what it gets at is, is that 
although the Egyptians did build that, and though it did take great technology to do that, the way to bridge that gap between the Egyptians obviously building it within their frame of reference and context, and yet the archaeological uh, advancement that was necessary to accomplish it, how do you bridge that? They do so not by alien astronauts, but by way of shamanism. Shamanism is a practice that involves a practitioner reaching altered states of consciousness in order to perceive and interact with what they believe to be the spirit world. And they're able to tra channel these transcendental energies into the world. A shaman is someone who is regarded as having access to and influence in the world of benevolent and malevolent spirits who typically enter into a trance state during a ritual and practices divination, healing. In fact, the word shaman probably originates from the Tunistic Eveki language of North Asia. According to ethnologists, uh, the word is attested in all of their idioms and all of these Eveki Northern Asian idioms, such as, uh, and it goes on with different lists of dialects there, nothing seems to contradict the assumption that the meaning shaman also derives a proto tusaic dialect. Now, those are all words that you may or may not be uh, um, familiar with, but suffice it to say, the ancient term of shamanism is very, very deeply rooted in the antiquity of man. The term was actually introduced to the West, though, after Russian forces conquered parts of Kazakhstan, and that word shamanistic uh, was brought into the Western vocabulary via Russia. But the theme is the same, whether it's Haiti or the witch at Endor, or the uh, spirit of divination that possessed the lady that Paul set free, I believe, there in Philippi when they were arrested and thrown in jail. It goes all the way back to the uh, spirit of the mediums that um, the Spartans sought to get information from before the Battle of 300. In other words, on and on and on, from the Eskimos to the uh, Algonquin Indians, shamanism is something that is very familiar around the world. So we come now to this book, The Stargate Conspiracy. How did the Egyptians do it? That's always been the long sought-after question. Well, I'm reading directly from them, page 341, The Stargate Conspiracy. Shamans are what used to be called medicine men and women, natural-born psychics who are nevertheless highly trained to interpret dreams, heal the sick, guide people through knowledge that comes to them during their ecstatic trances. They are found in what are generally taken to be, quote, primitive tribal societies, from Siberia to the Amazon rainforest. These adepts take shaman, shamanic flights out of the body into the realm normally inaccessible to mankind and return with specific information of great practical use. In 1995, a remarkable book was published in Switzerland entitled Les Serpents Cosmiques, in other words, it is the cosmic serpent, DNA, and the origins of knowledge by a Swiss anthropologist named Jeremy Narby. It was first published in English in 1998. It presents the results of Narby's personal study of the Amazonian shamans 
and reveals the remarkable scope of the information shamans glean during the ecstatic trances they induce by taking a natural hallucinogenic substance, primarily one called ayahuasca. From this research, Narby developed a theory about the origins of that knowledge that we believe has enormous significance for an investigation of the mysteries of ancient Egypt. In the mid-1980s, Narby was studying for his doctorate among the indigenous people of Peruvian Amazon, working on an environmental project. Like many before him, he soon became fascinated by the astounding botanical knowledge of these so-called primitive people, especially their med medicinal use of certain rare plants. He was impressed by the range of plant-derived medicines used by the tribal shamans, specifically one of them, the Ayahayushuris, and by their effectiveness, especially after they cured a long-standing back problem, which European doctors had pro uh, proved completely incapable of treating. The more he learned, the more intrigued he became about the ways in which the Amazonian natives had developed or acquired this knowledge. In other words, what he wanted to know was not just how did they get this botanical knowledge, or not just that they had it, but how did they get it? This is very key. The writer goes on to say, the odds against them coming up with even one of these recipes by chance, or even by experimentation, are simply overwhelming. There are some 80,000 species of plants in the Amazonian rainforest. So to discover an effective remedy using a mixture of just two of them would theoretically require the testing of every possible combination. Over 3 billion, 3.7 billion. It does not end there, the writer goes on. Many of their medicines involve several plants, and even then such a calculation does not allow for experimentation with the often extremely complex procedures necessary to extract the active ingredient and produce a potent mixture. Now get what he just said. This Jeremy Narby was trying to figure out how these quote-unquote primitive Amazonians could come up with an appropriate mixture of plants, of botanical chemicals, that produce healing effects. If there are 80,000 species of plants, and you have two particular parts of the recipe, that means that the experimentation, the mixture of just two of them, would theoretically require the testing with a combination of 3.7 billion. Now, how did they do that? One good example the writer goes on to say, of this mysterious medicinal knowledge, is the ayahuasca itself, the plant we mentioned earlier. A combination of just two plants. That's the mixture that they use. The first comes from the leaves of a shrub and contains a hormone naturally secreted in the human brain. We call it DMT. And for those of you that have listened to The Soul Trap, you are familiar with the DMT molecule, the spirit molecule, a powerful hallucinogen only discovered by Western science in 1979. If taken orally, though, it is broken down by an enzyme in the stomach and becomes totally ineffective. So the second component of the ayahuasca, extracted from a creeper, contains several substances that protect the DMT from that specific enzyme. In other words, if you were to take the DMT orally, it would break down. But these quote-unquote primitive shaman 
have been able to figure out from a creeper plant, sort of like a vine, another substance when mixed with it allows the drug to be potent and to work. In effect, the the ayahuasca is a designer drug made to order. It is as if the exact requirements of the mixture were specified in advance. Then the correct ingredients chosen to meet the requirements. But the question is how? How could anyone, even sophisticated Western botanists, have found the perfect ingredients without spending decades, perhaps even centuries, on trial and error? How can the primitive Amazonian natives have known the properties of these two plants? After all, the odds against them coming up with this combination by accident are truly astronomical. As Norby writes in his book, So here are people without electron microscopes who chose among some 80,000 Amazonian plant species the leaves of a bush containing a hallucinogenic brain hormone, which they combine with a vine containing substances that inactivate an enzyme of the digestive tract, which would otherwise block the hallucinogenic effect. And they do this to modify their consciousness. It is as if they knew about the molecular properties of the plant and the art of combining them. And when one asks how they know these things, they say their knowledge comes directly from hallucinogenic plants. Talk about talking in circles. How do they know that? Another example given by Narmi is that of the curare. This powerful nerve poison is another, quote, made-to-order drug whose ingredients this time come from several different plants and fit a very precise set of requirements. As Narby points out, the natives needed a substance that when smeared on the tip of a blowpipe dart would not only kill the animal, but also ensure that it would fall to the ground. Tree monkeys, for example, if shot with an unpoisoned arrow, often tighten their grip on the branches with a reflex action and die out of reach of the hunter. The meat itself would, of course, have to be freed from the poison and safe to eat. It seemed like a very tall order, but curare, the drug, the designer drug of these uncouth, uncivilized barbarian Amazons, this designer drug fits all the requirements. It is a muscle relaxant, killing by arresting the respiratory muscles. It only is, it's only effective when injected into the bloodstream. Hence, it delivers by blowpipe and it has no effect when taken orally. The invention of the curare is a truly astounding thing. The most common type requires a complex method of preparation in which several plants are boiled for three days, during which lethal fumes are produced. And the final result needs a specific piece of technology, the blowpipe, to deliver it. How was all of this discovered in the first place? The problem becomes even more baffling when it is realized that 40 different types of curare are used across the Amazon rainforest, all with the same properties but each using slightly different ingredients as the same plants do not grow in every region. Therefore, in effect, curare was invented 40 times. The Western world would only learn of it in the 1940s when it first began to be used as a muscle relaxant during surgery. The Amazonians themselves do not claim to have invented curare, but that it was given to them by the spirits through their shaman. These are just two examples from a vast range of vegetable mixtures used by the peoples of the Amazon. 
the full extent of which has not yet been cataloged by modern botanists even to this day. Realizing that it was nonsense to suggest that these complex recipes could have been achieved by experimentation, Narby began to ask local people and shaman how they had acquired this knowledge. And so that's the question. How did you get this knowledge? They told him that the properties of plants and the recipes for combining them are given directly to the shaman by very powerful spirit entities while he is in an ecstatic trance under the influence of hallucinogens such as the Ayahausa. Of course, this raises the fascinating chicken and egg type of problem. If the shaman discovered the secret properties only by ingesting it, how did they know about them in the first place? Now, this realization led Narby on to his own personal quest to research this neglected aspect of shamanism, which included taking Ayahuasca himself. Many anthropologists before Narby had recorded the claim that the shaman obtained knowledge by ingestion of hallucinogens, but none had ever taken this seriously enough to follow up. He found that this was a shared feature of shamanism across the world. Very important statement. That's part of one of the fundamentals of the soul trap, that there are enough dots to be connected globally that though we may not have the full picture, there is at least a sketch that something is there. He said, again, quoting from the book, he found that this was a shared feature of shamanism across the world and that the tribes ascribed the origins and the techniques of their culture to knowledge gleaned by their shamans while in ecstatic trance, during which they encounter guiding entities who teach them. So, Narby himself, on the first experiment with Ayahuasca, encountered a pair of gigantic snakes. Now get this. This French scientist took the drug himself, and what did he claim to see? He claimed that he encountered a pair of gigantic snakes that lectured him on his insignificance as a human being and the limits of his knowledge, which turned out to be an important personal turning point. He began to ask questions, his Western preconceptions, and approached his subsequent studies in a more open-minded and less scientifically arrogant way. His own book is itself an example of the way in which the shamanic experience can impart new knowledge. Narby writes that the serpent's induced thought in his mind that he was incapable of having himself. The properties and methods of combining plants to achieve specific results are not the only things communicated through the trance state by spiritual entities in this way. The Amazonian tribes ascribe their knowledge of specific techniques, such as the art of weaving and their mastery of woodworking, to the same source. What the shaman receive while in trance is useful knowledge that often, in the case of healing, actually saves lives. Aside from the question of the reality of such entities, the very idea of obtaining practical tips and actual information by such a method is, to our culture, quite frankly absurd. There are surely only two ways of obtaining knowledge. It is either worked out in logical steps by experiment or trial and error, or it is taught by someone who, or some other culture who, has already worked it out. Thus, in a nutshell, 
forms the problem of the origins of knowledge of the ancient Egyptians. And that's where we come to, the Stargate, and our question of the Egyptians and the pyramid. In a nutshell, the problem of the origins of the knowledge of the ancient Egypts, such as how they built the impossible Great Pyramid. Techniques appeared to come out of nowhere without any apparent process of logical or historical development. Since no archaeological evidence of stage-by-stage technical development has been found, it can be assumed that the process never occurred.